0: Hey, Hello there, Oliver Callan here and welcome to our weekly podcast, a compilation of our finest interviews from the last week. And so this week on Monday's show, the best-selling author Catlin Moran is synonymous with writing about women, but her latest book asks, What about men? She was the crack. I spoke to Irish artist Jennifer Humphreys, and author Christine Foley on Tuesday. They're part of an artist scheme that displays the power of creativity to break down stereotypes. Serical Martin came in to us to talk about her second novel, Service, which is set in a high-end Dublin restaurant during the boo years. The peak season of the Irish Agricultural Shows is here. Cavan Man Ray Brady is the president of the Irish Shows Association and he talked to us about the uniqueness of each agri-show. And on Friday's show it's the must-see movies of the summer. Kira King joined us in the studio to review Barbie vs. Oppenheimer. That's it. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Kathleen Moran, good morning to you. Good morning to you, my darling. Let's introduce you to some people who might claim or pretend they don't know who you are. Kathleen Moran is a feminist, a journalist, an author and an all-round funny person. Thank you very much. Some of your best-selling books include How to Be a Woman, How to Build a Girl, More Than a Woman. And now you've turned your attention to men. Yes. The latest one, What About Men?, uh, but we should start by saying you're you're a big fan of men, aren't you? You're yes, a-
1: yes. Uh, I think there's this presumption that all feminists are man haters, and uh, it's just not realistic to be a man hater, really. Like they're just everywhere. <laughs> you tend to be related to them. You can give birth to them. You've just got to. Go,
0: We're all brothers and sisters, are we not? And you just need to get on. And um, why would you go here then? Why would you talk about men? What specific reason are you here?
1: Well, I'd spent the last 10, 15 years talking about the women and the ladies. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever I do an event, the second or third question I'd be asked after an hour of talking about the women and the ladies uh, would be, oh yeah, but what about men? And at first, I admit I was quite peevish in my response. I was like, ah, they're fine. (laughs) Kind of like, also, I don't care. Uh, They will have to sort out their problems themselves. Also, it would be the ultimate irony of feminism, would it not, if women had to solve all of women's problems and then solve all the problems of men? But then it was International Women's Day two years ago, and I was doing an event at a college with some 15 and 16 year olds, half boys, half girls. Thought we'd be talking about the problems of women and girls, and the boys hijacked it. And they were like, no, it's men that have the problems now. It's Mm -hmm. harder to be a man than a woman. Women are winning and boys are losing. And they were angry. And when you deal with people who are angry, you know that they're scared because anger is just fear brought to the boil. And I was like, okay, this has got to be my next book. Why is this generation of boys so scared of women? Why do they think they're losing?
0: And I want to start at the start because you do it in a nice chronology in in a way in the book, because you start the boys entered the world of boys, very specific place. Uh, from school like straight away yeah
1: and I started interviewing men at the back I realised I didn't really know what men and boys lives were like like women are so there's all these statistics like 80% of books are bought by women and if you Mm -hmm. go into any bookshop in the world there's a women's section and it's massive and it's every part of our lives and all these memoirs and gossipy stuff and feminism there is no men's section we don't really write about men's lives particularly straight white men's lives in the way that we write about everybody else we don't see them as a separate class so I didn't really know what the experience of being a boy or a man was so I did lots of interviews and talked to people and just several things came up sport particularly football like even if you don't care about football as a boy you have to fake it till you make it you have <laughs> yeah. to you have to pick a team and pretend you care about it violence was a thing that I was really like as a woman I just didn't realize how sort of like common the fear of violence is like kind of every boy that I know had been in a fight I've never been in a fight and this explained one thing that had always really intrigued me about men they all the boys were saying that when they go to school you have to work out who you could beat in a fight and who would be able to beat you in a fight which suddenly I now understood all the men that I know of my age, who will sit in a pub for two hours. Yes. Going, what would win in a fight, a bear or a swan? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, that it starts in childhood. You have to work out who you could beat in a
0: fight. Well, actually, I I kind of strayed away in that chapter because you you gave one of the examples of uh, men talking about who would like would Sean Connery's James Bond be able to beat up Daniel Craig's. I was gone off thinking about it. I've been thinking about it ever since. So, what do you reckon? Because I was
1: deeping this <laughs> earlier. So, what who <laughs> do you <laughs>
0: think would win in that fight? I I say Daniel Craig, obviously yeah. being more ripped He's and fitter. lithe, yeah. Whereas Sean Connery is from the. You know, the good drunken 70s. But he is taller. And I just thought maybe if Sean Connery got Daniel Craig in a headlock. He's got the he leverage. Yeah, yeah. there was kind of no way back then for Daniel Craig. I
1: think also, I think Sean Connery would have the benefit of crazy. I think Sean Connery is an old school man. I think he'd fight dirty. So he would maybe do, he would kick Daniel Craig up the bum. And then Daniel Craig would be offended by this. That's His dignity right. would be destroyed. Yes, and psychologically, that would be devastating. Yeah, be so, yeah. I mean, like
0: Heineken Zero Man versus Sean Connery. Exactly. Smoking, drinking era. Yeah. Glasgow yeah. Milkman. He's, you know. Yeah, it
1: surprised him. he hit him on the head with a tray and go, haha,
0: ha. <laughs> and then... And Daniel Craig's sort of RADA training would be offended by it. But uh, the world, the boys' world, they enter this world where uh, violence is obviously the sort of the pecking order. Yeah. And I was kind of surprised that you didn't know this was, like you know, everyone, every one of us boys who've gone to school, you know, it's all sorted out with even just shoving in school. You kind of figure out who's going to, who's in charge, basically. But comedy is the currency.
1: Yes, no, usually so banter, definitely, and you see that from a very early age. And it's been fascinating on this tour. Just done a ten-date tour, and the people that we get in the queues. I do two-hour signings afterwards. It's like mothers, and particularly people in the educational system, like mm-hmm. kind of like teachers and support workers, and they're they're all just talking about how around about the age of seven. Before that, boys and girls are pretty similar. Yes. If a boy is sad, he will cry. Mm-hmm about the age of seven suddenly it's no that's a girly thing to do like if you cry at school as a boy like it's suddenly like oh dan's been crying it's a scandal like kind of like yeah. that's where it starts and that's the start of banter and suddenly when you listen if you're standing in a playground all the boys turn into like little jason stathams or the rocks it's all like <laughs> this is a car pow 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 whereas the girls are still up in the corner kind of like you know talking about their feelings and kind mm-hmm. of like talking about how they want to be prime minister one day and it's the diff- <laughs> it's basically the difference between the ladies and the men's toilets as a yes. woman if you Go into the ladies' toilets, whatever your problem, a bunch of complete strangers in there will come to your aid. Safety pin, check your eyeliner, tell your boyfriend's a bad man, put their arm around you, give you a shot, take you out to the dance floor, and you go, Yay, I've made some friends in the ladies' toilets. My understanding is that doesn't happen in the men's toilets. Do. Men don't go into the men's toilets with a problem and find that men snuggle up with them and give them hugs and then say you're my new friend and take them onto the dance floor so that's the difference between the male and the female communication styles and uh, that was what I wanted to write the book about because there's no reason why there should be that difference Mm -hmm. there's no reason why men shouldn't be able to like have a kind of brotherhood in the way that girls have a sisterhood
0: so the problems do and we never really leave the schoolyard do we no. This, this dynamic just continues on through life.
1: Well this is where it all starts. Like, There's a set stat of statistics at the beginning. So boys are more likely to be medicated at school for disruptive behaviour. They're more likely to be excluded from school. Less likely to go on to further education. More likely to join a gang. More likely to be addicted to drugs or alcohol or pornography. Uh, more like, They make up the majority of the homeless population and the prison population. Mm-hmm. And one in five. Uh, uh, and, and suicide is the leading cause of death for men under the age of 50. So that's a big set of problems. Mainly around communication and education. It all starts at school. So so that was the sort of, those are the facts that I wanted to go into the book with, but then have fun with it. Because I think the reason that if boys do think that women are winning and boys are losing at the moment, it's because women have invented feminism. And for the last 15 mm-hmm. years, we've just found a brilliant way to talk about the problems of being a woman that makes, you know, the thing we hear all the time is the future is female. Like kind of like it's lists of women who are going to change the world. And I want that sense of hope and discussion
0: for the boys to have She'll that. Because w- women had to invent feminism. Oh, yeah. Because the boys had had it all.
1: Yeah well exactly I mean 150 years ago our grandmothers you know we couldn't own property you know we couldn't vote we couldn't go into politics we couldn't wear trousers or smoke cigarettes or have any kind of fun whatsoever and then we invented feminism and now we're in space you know we're ruling countries like there's been this amazing sense of progress for the girls but nothing's really changed for the boys Mm. and I just think that maybe now is the time with those statistics that I talked about it's quite obvious there is a problem and I think maybe boys would like to have the kind of conversations we've had about women which is like should we invent you boys? Do you want hope and let's talk about what's good about men because when i talked to those boys who were angry they were like yeah i've been brought up in a house where i've got a feminist mom and all i hear are saying is like typical men Typical straight white men, toxic patriarchy. And I know she's joking, but like I haven't ever heard her say anything good about boys. Mm. And I was like, okay, let's write a book that's good, that just says positive good things about boys.
0: So these angry boys out there uh, who are feeling left behind by the the recent, particularly the more recent wave of feminism around Me Too and so on, their attention is now being captured by some uh, pretty nasty people.
1: Oh, yeah, yes. Andrew Tate.
0: And there is a scale, though, isn't there? It kind of starts... At Jordan Peterson? Yes. Which is, you
1: know... Not a fan of, no. Uh, I I had loads of people going, you know, he is the foremost intellectual of our time. You should read his books. And I was like, okay, So dipped into his oeuvre. So I didn't go to school. I didn't go to university. I'm from a council of the state in Wolverhampton. And this guy's the biggest intellectual in the world. So I thought there was going to be some pretty meaty facts in this book. There isn't. First of all, his two big bits of advice that everyone goes on about are, one, you should make your bed in the morning. Mm. And two, if you walk down the street and you see a cat, pet it, and it will give you an enormous sense of well-being. That stuff your mum has been telling you for years. Like, kind of like <laughs> <Yeah>. literally. <laughs> and you've been ignoring children. it. Yeah. Like, kind of like. And then, secondly, he's got this lobster theory that human beings are that men are like lobsters. Yes. So, male lobsters, if they ever win in a fight, if they stop being aggressive and they lose a single fight, a chemical reaction happens where their brains liquefy and they become brain damaged and submissive for the rest of their lives. Yes. And so, Jordan P. Peters goes, so men must always be aggressive and you must never lose a fight. A couple of points here. One... We diverged evolutionarily from lobsters 800 million years ago. Lobsters (laughs) urinate out of their eyes. (laughs) We do not have gigantic, delicious hands. We're not lobsters. And if human beings, when they lost a single fight, became brain damaged, then the Olympics would be a bloodbath. And even the family game of Scrabble at Christmas would be a human rights issue. So we're not like lobsters. I can't believe the cleverest man in the world is telling men they can never lose a single argument or fight. As humans, we lose arguments and fights all the time.
0: And of course, it's not even his advice. These are rules. Rules. These are his 12 rules, rules for life. Yeah. But uh, the thing I'd never thought of before until you pointed out is that he is pretty miserable. Oh, yes.
1: Isn't he, Jordan Peters? Oh, he's a depressive man. I do a list of all the times he says things like, life is suffering, earth is hell, human beings are not made to be happy. There's a whole page of them. Like, he's yeah. a very depressive fundamentalist Christian, with some pretty tasty views on vaccines, global warming, and trans and trans rights. And um, I just, if you're going to take your advice from someone, you want to just take it from some kind of laid-back, happy guy. Like, i take life advice from Paul McCartney. He looks like yeah. he's living a smashing life. Jordan Peterson does not look like he's having a smashing life. And anyone who says there are rules,
0: there are no rules. Rule. The only rule is there is no rules. Well, he says himself he's having a, a pretty miserable life. He's And he's, he's crying all the time, isn't he?
1: Palpably, yeah. No, I listened to his podcast with um, Russell Brand and he just sobbed through the first 45 minutes. It's like, come on, cheer up, mate. You sold eight million books. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, so he's a, he's a constipated kermit. is mm. basically the kind of is the summary. Oh,
1: can we talk about the constipation? Yeah, please. He's please. Following this, is this He's following this mad diet where all he eats is beef, salt and water. <laughs> And then, not surprisingly, became massively constipated. Like, again, you wouldn't take life advice from a man he doesn't know about fibre. Yes. Have a bowl of ore bran. Like, this is a terrible life.
0: It's all, that's obviously might explain why he's crying all the time, just to get his osmosis levels Which He's all bummed in, up in down order. below.
1: He spent hours on the toilet and he's so, so sad.
0: So, as I say, that, that's the scale. You open with Jordan Peterson, but goes all the way up to... Andrew Tate, which is a dark place Yeah, so that, the stats that the angry on boys this. are drawn to.
1: Well, the stats on this are terrifying. So, like, kind of like – my understanding is that every single school in the UK has had to have a staff meeting for dealing with this. So his mm. fans are disrupting lessons. Female teachers are having homework handed back to them by male pupils that say, make me a sandwich written on the bottom, mm-hmm. like, you should not be teaching me. Male teachers are having boys going, do you let your wife go out on her own? And the reason that Andrew Tate is such a huge phenomenon is because, and this is what breaks my heart, so half the book's basically aimed at kind of like middle-aged men of my age and the other half is aimed at teenage boys. The lovely, good liberal men of my generation, when this recent wave of feminism came along, basically went, fair enough, let the ladies have have a, have a chance now. We'll just be a bit quiet and stoic and we're not going to talk about men and boys anymore. Yeah. But that Because means... they understood the
2: history. Yeah, exactly. They've they? got yeah.
1: perspective. Yes. 10,000 years of patriarchy and Benny Hill chasing sexy schoolgirls around yes. a tree. Yes. But, of course, time goes really quick. So suddenly a whole new generation of boys have come along when we've only been talking about the future being female. No one, the the good liberal progressive men have not been talking about masculinity in boys. Mm. So Andrew Tate comes along. He's the first person to go, actually, boys are great and you can't have too much masculinity. And why don't you have a bunker in Romania where you run a sex cam operation, Uh, which is obviously not good advice for boys. That's not if you're feeling a bit anxious and depressed about your exams running a Romanian sex bunker is not going to make you feel happy.
0: What's frightening is the age of the boys that are attracted to this Andrew Tate um, sad universe.
1: Yes, no, I mean it's, uh, from from what we see from the stats, they tend to grow out of it by the time they're sort of 17, 18, 19 yeah. but the, the the stats on it are huge, like every single school in the UK has been disrupted by this.
0: I, I, but they're the immersed from about 11.
1: Yes, it happens really, really early and that's, and that's where you realise that we do kind of need to have, I mean the, the offer I'm making in the book is going, feminism's been a blast and it's palpably made women's lives better We need a version of that for boys now where kind of like if you're 11 and 12, because it's all about role models. Mm. Women have been so good at coming up with amazing role models. Every teenage girl's wall is covered in a pantheon of amazing role models. We don't really talk about role models for boys in the same way. So when someone dark like Andrew Tate comes along, like kind of he's the first person who's going,
0: yeah, let's talk about men. And unlike Jordan Peterson, his life isn't exactly working out very well.
1: No. I mean, the latest picture that I saw of that he posted on Twitter, he was topless on a motorbike holding a machine gun and a balaclava. It's like... That suggests that your life isn't that pleasant. Like kind of, you just pop into the shops in that outfit. Why would you need to be dressed like that on a Saturday morning?
0: Yeah, and facing some very serious charges as well. We could say, uh, the, how do they? Grow, how do the boys grow out of Andrew Tate? Have you got any? So
1: I found this amazing educational expert called Josh Spears who goes around schools, and he was saying that, like, I think especially when parents find out their kids are into uh, someone like Andrew Tate, their first thing is just to go, "This is a bad man. This guy's a dick, and you need to not have him as your hero." Mm. No young kid wants to hear that so he was like he starts a conversation going I used to have a hero when I was younger someone I really looked up to and admired and that was Kevin Spacey yeah. and when I found out that Kevin Spacey had been you know faced with numerous allegations of wrongdoing I was faced with a choice that everyone has as they are growing up it's to either go no I don't believe these things that are being said about my heroes I double down on my love that is a conspiracy theory." Or you do what you will have to do over and over again in your life, which is go, I chose a hero who has now let me down and I need to sit with that heartbreak for a bit and then I need to find a new hero and he's very much about going basically when you're young you need like a catalogue of heroes and role models that you can flick through going oh that one works for me that one Mm. works for me so when I looked for good role models for boys I googled most loved men in the world and it took me ten google search pages to find the first list of most loved men because the return I kept getting was the most powerful men in the world and I think that's my, my fundamental worry with people like Andrew Tate and Jordan B. Peterson they're talking they're saying that power is what men Need that, that's what will cure your depression and anxiety and worry about your place in the world. And power never made anyone depressed and anxious happy. What you want is empowerment. Mm. How do you self soothe? How do you educate yourself? How do you feel like you're part of something? How do you change the definition of what it is that you are? And that's what feminism did for women. We didn't want power over men we just wanted to be empowered. Yes. And that's what I'm hoping that, boys, that's the conversation I feel that we need to start now. It's not about getting power over women. It's about empowering yourselves, which you can do on your own. You don't need to oppress a load of women. It'll save you so much time.
0: You found some nice examples. Uh, Kiana Reeves, in particular, uh, I was struck by. Yes,
1: much, so loved. Yeah, Keanu, which is interesting, because obviously he is Neo in the Matrix, and a huge yeah. amount of these sort of right-wing conspiracy theories are about the Matrix, but the actual guy who was in the Matrix set up a cancer foundation. He's well known for, on the sets of Films like sharing out the profits between all the rest of the crew. Like, he's just a genuinely lovely man. And Paul McCartney, as well, you know, kind of like he's an amazing role model. Biggest rock star in the world, could have done anything. Married a single mother, moved up to Scotland, and started making bread and thatching a roof. Like, he's a really interesting (laughs) alpha
0: man. Are there role models for fellas that might be a little bit conservative leaning, right leaning? Because that's kind of, if you're a right leaning, Kid or whatever, or you're in your twenties. You know, are there the role models that are sort of in the kinder vein uh, that don't uh, think you know no to immigrants, no to women, and so on?
1: Yeah, I don't know more conservative ones. I'm all about the, the liberal, sexy guys. <laughs> right, so like, okay, I, that's like, your you know, just like you know, your jam. Sexy liberals and and any kind of puppets or muppets, like kind of like Gonzo from the Muppets is still my ideal hero. So like <laughs> and husband, I hope one day.
0: <laughs> um, th- th- we'll stick with the teenage boys for the moment, and we'll we'll talk about the the more middle aged men. Uh, Because pornography is obviously a huge issue for this uh, teenage group in particular, since it's their sex education.
1: Yes. Hugely. So, then so one of the stories in the book, uh, it's the, sort of one of the chapters that's had the most impact. So, when I wrote How to Be a Woman, we were talking about pornography from a, from a women's point of view, and I was just sort of going, obviously, most of what you see online is from male gaze because the, the all the menus you get are types of women, and uh, you know, it's it's not tender or funny or realistic. And in th- in that book, which I wrote in 2010, I went, I hope by the time my daughters and and the boys of their age are teenagers and looking at porn, that they'll find something that's brilliant and tender and realistic. And uh, one of the boys I mentioned was this boy called Sam, who is now 22. And uh, I spoke to him recently and he went, yeah, it's really funny when you wrote that. Because when that book came out, I was eight and I laughed because I was already looking at pornography when I was eight. Wow. And the thing that we don't understand as parents, because when we were growing up, like kind of like pornography, you just found it in hedges. Like that's where the people left the magazines. That's where you found the pornography. But our kids are in this world of infinite online pornography and we don't understand what they're seeing or we don't know how young they're watching it. And the fact is that your child's entry into the world of pornography is absolutely predicated on the most troubled kid in your class throwing their mobile phone at them and going, look at this. This is weird. This is freaky. Yes. And because we don't know our kids are seeing at that age, we haven't given them the talk. Mm -hmm. And the the talk is this, that you don't just look at pornography. Pornography looks into you Mm -hmm. because you are soft, malleable clay at that age. So, of course, whatever sex you are seeing becomes your sexual imagination and your sexual fantasies. That's what you will want sexually for the rest of your life. And if what you're seeing is completely unrealistic, violent, uh, you know, unpleasant sex then that's what you're going to want for the rest of your life. Like kind of, and we're not telling our kids that. So they're seeing this and they think this is what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. And as I detail in the, in the book, Sam had terrible problems with this. He was just unable to have normal sexual relationships with any of his partners because he was so overwhelmed by being with an actual woman rather than watching a screen that, I mean, it's just awful. that he, he would, he would have to put a pillow over his partner's faces because he couldn't look at a woman God. while they were having sex. It's just, you know, what are we doing? To, how have we screwed up sex for our kids? Mm. You know, Cats do it on shed roofs in the rain. And yet we are the species with these massive brains and all this technology, and we're, we're screwing up sex for our kids.
0: Uh, Sam, he does recover.
1: Yes, he's an amazing... I cannot tell you what an amazing boy he is. So, yeah, so... His OCD had complicated this situation, but he's now, as he says, two years clean of porn, and he now wants to go around schools and like talk to kids about the reality of porn because there's one thing sort of parents and teachers talking about it. But if you've got you know a, a very handsome, charismatic 22 year old boy coming in and going, "I had this experience, and I want to talk to you as an equal and a peer," I think it's an easier way to start a conversation for a lot of young people.
0: Yeah. Um, someone is sending in a message a brilliant conversation about education of young boys Damian Dempsey is a brilliant role model for the Young Dubs he's a he's a great hero he's a singer songwriter Love Yourself being one of his tunes which is kind of a part of your message isn't it That. Well- boys need to love themselves. Well, that's the big thing, because obviously we've just spent, you know, the last couple of minutes talking about really dark
1: stuff and some really chunky statistics. But like what I observed worked for women and the feminist movement is just starting from a place of joy and hope. You know, what is brilliant about women? What do we love about women? And we need to do this about boys. Like it's got to the point now where, you know, I've been doing this tour for two weeks. And when I say the phrase straight white man, I still feel quite tense because that's usually the start of a horrible conversation or people being bigoted or homophobic or racist. But if you can't, if you are a straight white man and saying... What you are sounds a bit shameful, and you're worried you're going to be attacked. For a generation of boys, if you can't even say what you are, name the category you're in, then we we come into a very negative world. So I wanted to start with joy and hope and positivity. What's good about men? What do we love about our boys? You know, at the end of the day, we're all just brothers and sisters on the back seat of a car. You know, driving off to our ultimate destination, which is you know to be existential, the grave. So we're (laughs) here for a very short period of time, and we need to get on and be happy in the back seat together.
0: Um, there's someone here that says they're a principal of an all-boys secondary school. We've seen the hugely disturbing influence of Andrew Tate here. Parents not addressing or not aware of their child's internet access, targeting female teachers, challenging male teachers, even with the best of advice from real role models, uh, they do not believe that Andrew Tate is wrong. This is exactly what you're talking about, isn't it? And you can firewall your, your child's phone all you want, but they're going to get it from someone else's Of phone course. And, and, a, and of a, you it. know,
1: and a big part of that is rebellion as well. Like, kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got some, like, good liberal progressive parents, like, you know, what's the thing that's going to grind their gears most if you come back being kind of like, you know, an extreme right-wing mean, misogynist? So, like, you know, part of it is teenage rebellion, but, like, knowing the scale of it and knowing how to start a conversation, it's all about, everything's about knowing a good, conversational tone and i don't think we've yet invented a way to talk to particularly our young boys in the kind of brilliant frank shameless funny warm relaxed way that we've learned to talk to our teenage girls about their bodies their lives and their problems and that's as a bit of a chat machine i was like that was the task yeah, i okay. set myself i was like i reckon i can invent a relaxed funny chatty
0: way to talk about the problems of teenage boys do you, think, do you think that day is ever going to happen? Because obviously, the difference between um, teenage girls talking about their bodies and celebrating them on social media is a world away from boys. Oh
1: he, yeah, I mean this is this is the thing. Like, so on Instagram, for instance, when I was growing up as a fat teenage girl, it was not a great thing to be. And I'm now growing up in it, and now I'm in an era where my daughters are growing up. And on Instagram, you see big girls with their rolls and their stretch marks mm. in bikinis taking pictures of themselves, smiling, and all their friends are like, "Yes, queen, fire emoji, dancing yeah. girl emoji, as on TV though, as Yes, well? yeah, totally. But the idea of a fat teenage boy right now taking a picture of himself in his trunks there would be tumbleweed or people going that's a bit weird or yeah. that's a bit gay and but but that's but that celebration of women that's something we've invented in the last 15 years and I don't mm. see why we can't invent that for teenage boys now mm. that's the thing cultural change can
0: come so quickly It was very fast when you, say, when you put it like that
1: Hugely I look at articles that I wrote 10 years ago bemoaning kind of like the kind of teenage girls that we'd see on TV just going oh they're all just really thin and pretty and
0: boring and now <laughs> we live in a world of like you know euphoria and book smart so it can change really quickly uh, Someone's asking what about the fabulous and genuine maleness of gay men We are men too, says John. I was reading this with a a gay man's um, perspective.
1: Well, this is one of the really interesting... So I've mainly targeted it at straight white men because, Mm. like, the women, like the LGBTQI community, people of colour, we've been really good at talking about identity and campaigns over the last 10, 15 years. You know, Pride, International Women's uh, Day and stuff. Straight white men haven't had anything like that. So I was targeting it mainly at straight white men. But one of the most interesting things was I looked through history to see if there had ever been any kind of men's movement before. Mm. And there had, but over and over again... They were destroyed by homophobia because as soon as men started talking about being emotional, being more tactile, people would just be like, oh, that's just a bit gay, and it would crash to a halt, which is why it's really interesting that my daughter's generation, for all their problems with Andrew Tate, they are notably more tactile. They are notably more emotional. You see teenage boys hugging each other and go, you're right, mate. And that's happened with the decline in homophobia that we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years. So although we've always talked about the alliance between straight women and gay men, really weirdly, the fate of straight men is very much intertwined with the state of gay men's status because as homophobia declines, actually straight men can do more things because they're not scared of being accused of being gay anymore. So I found that a really interesting subject that we've never really talked about how the fates of straight and gay men are actually quite intertwined.
0: Yeah, because I suppose it's... It's the fact that women had to invent feminism and, and gay men had to invent gay rights yes. movements. Men's movements do tend to be opposed to something as opposed to for something. There's a, there's a negativity about Hugely. it.
1: Hugely. And that was why I spent so much time trying to get, the hopefully, the tone of the book right and go, like, this isn't about being angry and trying to get power. It's about empowerment. You don't need to see... Men, straight white men do not need to see their status in the world as opposed to every other group. It's not yes. like all these groups are winning and losing. We all just need to make our lives better. Like, kind of like, it's not about winning and losing. We can't win or lose. We're all in this together. It's a tiny planet. We can't go anywhere else.
0: (laughs) And, in fact, men should read... This book, especially men who have boys, I think, but um, it, it is probably going to be mostly women based on the fact that women buy all the books in the yes. house and they buy all the books in the world.
1: Yeah, well, this, it, I think basically half of it is stuff that uh, wives will be showing to their husbands going, this chapter's about you. Why don't men get yeah. to the doctor? Your ratty gym t-shirt, kind of like your fear of ageing, the male midlife crisis. And then the other half, mums are going to be showing it to their teenage sons. Your and going, friends. Why don't you have
0: Chats about all of these things we've discussed since morning with your friends.
1: Oh, well, just the stats. Like one in five men over the age of 50 says they don't have any close friends. Like kind of, and that's just, and when my husband read the chapter that I wrote, the first draft of the chapter I wrote about friendship, where I'm going, my girlfriend, I know everything my girlfriend's had for breakfast this morning. We're Mm. all on a WhatsApp group. We schedule seeing each other. Men aren't so good at scheduling these things. And uh, after my husband read the first draft of that, he was like, I've just realised something really important. Friendship is a verb. It's a doing word and I just keep forgetting that I need to schedule regularly seeing my male friends. And it was really easy. He does that now. He plays tennis once a week with his friend Andrew. Once a month they all go and play records together. And it was just these, sometimes it's little things that do change the quality of your life and men yeah. just putting things in the diary to see their mates it makes a huge amount of difference. It's
0: going make a huge difference. Uh, your book launches are always accompanied with these massive uh, live tours you do across Britain and Ireland. So is that like group therapy? for? Oh,
1: hugely, yeah. <laughs> no, it was interesting because like, I mean, thank God for the tour, to be honest, because like usually when I I release a book with without sounding like a big head, uh, the the re- response is just hurrah. Didn't have a hurrah with this one for the first two weeks before the book came out, when no one had read it, there were a lot of very angry men just going, "Why has a woman written a book about men?"
0: Before you've done it, yes, yes,
1: of course. The, no one had read it, and the responses were half were going, "How dare you say that men need more help with friendship and emotions?" Like and that's a very old fashioned generalisation. Screw you. And the other half were going, "How dare you say we should be emotional and and have friendships when?" Not biologically wired for it, why are you trying to make men like women? Yeah. I was like, if you two groups just discuss this, that's the start of a men's movement. Don't have a go at me. But then the first night of the tour, and I was feeling a bit wobbly about this. A man went, You joke, why has a woman had to write this book? Like you know, I had waited ten years for a man to write this book, and then in the end I was like, Oh, I'll do it. And he, <laughs> okay, and, and he don't went, Don't you realise a woman had to do it? Because can you imagine if a man now wrote a book called What About Men? where they were saying we need to talk about men now it's their time they have problems mm.
0: we'd be destroyed we'd fasc- be thinking we'd be thinking fascist in our head
3: really, exactly it? yeah it. it'd
1: be reactive
0: it, it's, it does what it says what about men Kathleen Moran it's been fascinating and I wish you luck on your trips around around the place
1: thank you my darling Discussing,
0: and hopefully you can save men from ourselves
1: that's my Well, the book's number one this week so oh, congratulations well, like
0: congratulations the humble brag <laughs> has begun had to wedge it in at the and end could do it so easily but the <laughs> men are not allowed to do that apparently <laughs> And you're very welcome back. 51551, that is the text number. Now I guess this morning are a hell of an example of the power of creativity, arts, breaking down stereotypes, overcoming the obstacles and the barriers and all that. Artist Jennifer Humphreys and author Christine Foley, who's sitting opposite me here in the studio. They're two people who are involved in the Connecting Artists program. They're here to tell us what all that's about. Jennifer Humphreys is in our Cork studio. Good morning to you, Jennifer.
4: Good morning.
0: How are you doing? Are you in good form? I'm good. And you're one of the artists that took part in this project what stereotypes are we talking about first of all about b- breaking down Jennifer
4: it's called breaking down barriers as as a person with disabilities we ca- we come from a very mix mixed stereotyping between the normal artists to the the di- disability artists were criticized for much more yeah. and in education background you're you have to give 110% more because yeah. you want to put in your best effort at the end of the day.
0: You have to work much harder than anyone yeah. else. Uh, and uh, how did you find your place as an artist, if that's not too windy a question to be asking you?
4: How did I find myself? As yeah, a...
0: as an artist. How, do you, how did you find your way as an artist?
4: I think years ago when I was, I was just a little girl, I grew up with a lot of creativity in my house. Mm-hmm. Where my, my dad being a carpenter, he used to sit on the dining table drawing sketches by kitchens by hand. And mm-hmm. I used to like the whole aspect of using a ruler and learning how to draw a straight line even yeah. even though I had the most shakiest hand. And I think I, I would keep keep on learning because I grew up I grew up learning from Artie Den and Art Attack and Don Conroy. He's one of my favourite artists. Yeah, I grew up with them watching watching on the little telly.
0: And you found the love for it. Yeah. And and carpenters, we sometimes don't credit them with being artists, but they are artists, aren't they? Carpenters.
4: They are. Mm. They're very creative on how they direct the angles and perspective of the room. We use perspective a lot in drawing and compositions nowadays mm-hmm. even when I was attending our college for s- five years I learned how to do the perspective drawings and how to how to merge them together
0: yeah so it's a visual art that's yeah. where you did, did your parents notice your talent and your interest
4: I think I think she my mom did when I was little when I was keep taking my dad's computer paper all the time and she could see the copy books being all written in in little doodles and stuff and all that.
0: And she's a bit of a hero of yours, your mum, isn't she?
4: Yeah, my mum's amazing. My <laughs> mum's like my hero. Why,
0: why? What's so great? What's so great about your mammy?
4: My mammy's just very supportive. She's been there most of my life, and she's fought my corner throughout throughout the education system, and she comes everywhere of me.
0: That's fun. that's really cool. The supportive mam, and she's a bit of crack as well.
4: Oh yeah, she's a bit of crack when a night a night out.
0: You <laughs> like a bit of mischief. I'm going to bring in the author Christine Foley, who's who's in studio with us here as well. Um, uh, Christine, can you tell us a little bit about? this Connecting Artists Programme.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Good morning, Oliver. Morning, Jennifer. Um, I actually saw a call out in on Instagram about the Connecting Artists Programme 2023, mm. and I didn't read much about it. I just kind of saw that they were looking for mentors um, to help artists. I'd been kind of working at MyCraft for the last kind of seven years, and I thought this is definitely something I could um, support. So I did the application and I was selected as one of the mentors. And I got the brief, and after reading the brief, I realized this was a call out for visual artists. Uh-huh. Um, so I was like, oh no, okay, well, they've made a mistake here. <laughs> uh, so I emailed Miriam, who's the CEO of, of Connection Arts, and I was like, oh, Miriam, sorry, I, I misunderstood. I thought it was like artists of all disciplines. So like remove me from it. And she emailed back and she was like, absolutely not. Um, it's, it's, you're there to support them. Um, to support your artist um, in in a, in any way that's possible, but I was still a little bit nervous because, um, as Jennifer knows, I don't have a, like I can't I can't draw a straight line. Um, so I saw Jennifer's work and I thought, oh my god, how am I going to help this person who is so extraordinarily talented already in her own right? Um, so I was really nervous. We had a Zoom a Zoom call to meet for the first time, mm. and we went on Zoom and. We just connected straight away. I think our personalities are really similar and we ended up talking about Dunkin' Donuts and that was when I knew this was going to be a really good relationship. Um, And yeah, I just think it's a fantastic program and I've
4: Love the experience.
0: The, the meandering minds of, of artists. Yes, <laughs> from absolutely, plates, including Donuts.
4: It's like artists versus writer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's
0: some kind of Marvel uh, universe <laughs> kind of thing. Um, I want to come back to you again, Jennifer, because uh, can you give us an idea? You're talking about the great support you got from your parents, the, the carpenter dad, and your mum, who's the supporter and, and great crack. What, what was school like for someone with an intellectual d- disability?
4: um school for me back then it was more of a struggle in primary school because they didn't take art that much in the in the 90s yes. <laughs> they didn't they didn't take it as take it as much as they do now mm. um primary school I was really into art but they were more focused on the the sports and the the school sports days and <laughs> maths and english and irish not so much art. No, I sat at the back of a room. I just started doodling any 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 way I can.
0: Did anyone look out for you in school that you remember?
4: Oh, I had one teacher. She she had me in senior events. Um, Liz Corcoran. She was such a supportive teacher, and she became she became such a role model because she told me before a long time ago, keep creating. How old you were? How how young you were?
0: And you didn't study Irish, so you had the free classes and that, those free classes didn't amount to nothing. you That's where you did all your doodling and your drawing.
4: Yeah, I had a special ed, education classes as well so that they, they had me picked up with the homework of the English and maths. Mm. Even though I wouldn't do my maths, I always asked my dad to help me.
2: And,
0: and your parents, how did they help you? Uh, knowing that you're different, I mean, did, did you feel different and ha- how did your family help you along?
4: Um, I felt much different in primary school. Right. I grew, grew up with six people in my family, three sisters and two brothers. And we all went to the same primary school. And they all looked out for me. Mm-hmm. And the older you get, I do appreciate 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 them all. It's like my, my youngest brother... Adam he's he was in UCC and he was my biggest sport he's always been there
0: i think the the nice thing with all the lovely support that you get from people you you became ultimately an artist by yourself
4: yeah i like i like the the irish the old fashioned irish of storytelling
0: how do you describe your disability to people
4: my my disability is intellectual disabilities of reading and writing
2: mm-hmm.
4: and the more older I got, I, was, I struggled with the thing that me, me and other people that know me is called the cop on gene. I don't have the same sense of sense of reality yeah. <laughs> like in video games and I learned that yes, I am different. But it makes me a better person in the end.
0: It makes you an interesting person yeah. as well. So the, I like that description. You're lacking the cop-on gene. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of people that can sometimes be applied to it in different ways as well. Um, so how did you become too involved in, in the Connecting Artists programme?
4: Um, l- last only, only a few months ago, I was still in our college, in St. John's College. And I... I know this other artist from last year's, Amy Begley, yeah. she was an incredible artist. I know her through Cope Nation because I went through Cope Foundation as well.
0: Oh yeah, what is the Cope Foundation?
4: Cope Foundation helps people with disabilities, mm-hmm. physical and mentally, but from a young age to an older age and they help people so much.
0: And, and, and they helped you get to third uh, to prepare for third level?
4: Yeah. I went to Scarburn, that in Montenalli and that's when my art really sprung on a bit more.
0: Yeah, that's hugely important. And, and that's where yourself and Christine Foley in the Connecting Arts programme, that's where you all uh, meet up. Did you find commonality, Christine, together pretty quickly? Even though it's a, you're a writer and Jennifer is a visual artist.
3: Yeah, hugely so. And I think kind of Jennifer's touched on it, like... Um, regardless of kind of your background, when you go into any arts discipline, you are very much on your own um, and you do feel that sort of that that difference as well. Um, so when I was speaking, when we had our Zoom calls together, like it was that safe space for both of us. And obviously I was the mentor, but I, I was saying to everybody afterwards, like I learned so much from this as well. Mm-hmm. And I learned so much from Jennifer. I felt like she was also mentoring me. And we had those hours together where we had a really safe space um, to to create together and and to to talk and just sometimes your friends, and your family don't really understand because this is a very, you know, art can be quite a lonely, lonely discipline because Mm. you're creating on your own and trying to explain that to other people. So I think we really connected on on that level. And that was, yeah, it was great.
0: What way did Jennifer mentor you?
3: I, I like she was she's just so inspirational in every way like obviously her art is absolutely extraordinary but she's just she is brilliant crack as well we just had so much fun together and I was working on the final draft of my novel kind of throughout the last the 10 weeks that we did the programme yeah. the last 10 weeks of me getting in and I was quite stressed um, and I'd wake up stressed and then I'd have a call with Jennifer and she just kind of calmed me down because um, I was looking at her work and like all the challenges that she's faced and the barriers and everything that she's overcome and that I was like, OK, Christine, you need to get your act together and finish this book, you know. Um, so I came away from those calls and I wrote for two hours every time I had a call with Jennifer afterwards because I just felt that drive. And. Um, because Jennifer is so upbeat and positive about Mm -hmm. everything. And we discussed, like, you know, the the hardships and the the difficulties. um, But it was always a really positive kind of conversation. And, you know, um, I have not faced the same challenges as Jennifer at all. Um, So to see somebody really, really um, succeed, it was just really inspirational for me.
0: Uh, And you got the novel done.
3: The novel's done,
0: yeah. That's the the main achievement. Uh, Jennifer, do people underestimate you... As an artist, and think this is just an old hobby for you.
4: Yes, they did mm. most most of the time when I was growing up. When I got older, I didn't have the i didn't didn't have this the sense of believing myself. I always always felt lonely, and I have the self doubt the back in mind that you are never gonna make it. Yeah, but connections, arts, and Christina herself has been inspiring for me to keep on believing in myself. It's
0: an, it's an amazing story. Can you describe, Jennifer, the type of work that you do?
4: Um, I'm a, a multimedia artist mm-hmm. and I do a lot of like makey do stuff with collage like, like from newspapers, book covers with acrylics and watercolour and if if somebody wants me to write stage and I would because I love figuring out the next step of the project
0: oh yeah
4: and it's the it's just the general one much of creating something and putting it on paper and then you look back at it and you're like yes i done it
0: yes you've done it and the culmination of this Connecting Artists programme is an exhibition tell us about that
4: um, there is we had the opening exhibition in Dublin in Royal Surgeon's Hall only yeah Yesterday, mm-hmm. and we—I'm from Cork, so I have to travel up from Dublin, uh, and we got there in time. Kind of got lost by the same scenes. It's, it's the worst
0: thing for Cork. Cork people to come up to Dublin. It is the worst. Uh, but it must have been a big moment for you to see your work at this exhibition.
4: Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. I got I got really over emotional. Wow. I, I, I couldn't stand straight. I was like so fidgety. I was like, oh my God, this is happening to me mm-hmm. because I never thought a solar, I have a solar exhibition for myself yeah. and to see everybody else's, of the other nine artists around the room, smiling with the family and friends and how old, how young they're. It's incredible.
0: You should be really, really proud of yourself. Thank you. I hope you are. What's next for you For you and your art? Because this is obviously, this is a lifetime of work ahead of you.
4: Um, it's like it's like an up and down experience because I just finished five years of art college, and I decided to take a year a year out, not doing college, because my creativity was was just at the at's at end there, and I couldn't I couldn't be more creative. I got more creativity out of doing this, cor- doing the Connection Arts than I ever did in our college. Mm-hmm. So I decided I'm going to do commission work for people and try to get a job to support me to have a living because I think artists with disabilities don't have the, enough support yeah. society.
0: It's great to have it now. What, what's your advice to others listening in who are maybe who were like yourself once upon a time, and how do they, how do they they, they move on?
4: Um, take a step back and grab yourself a cup of tea or coffee, and just think about it. Would you like to be on this program and enjoy the momentum of of, of having your art out there and have the courage to? look at all the paintings because I didn't have any courage to do this program at first because when I signed up before I was shaking, when I clicked on the apply the button, I didn't know if I was going to get in because I was still in college mm-hmm. and I was like, I have college, I have this. Help me, <laughs> and I was like juggling two things at the same time. I was coming back from college to do the Zoom calls with Miriam and Sharon with the nine other artists, where we taught each other out to do different types of art on Zoom. Yeah, and we did have the crack in Zoom, and yeah. we had so much fun because everybody is unique and everyone was different. And everyone's in different parts of the country. And we had the battles of Dublin and Cork. Yeah. And we had we had, we had we had just a great time.
0: I think you found your tribe, um, Jennifer Humphries. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. And after listening to you this morning, who needs the cop on, Jean? <laughs> needs Nobody it. does. Christine Foley, before I let you go, is the novel out? Are you...
3: It's going to be out early next year. Oh, very good. Yes. Well, tell us anything about it before <laughs> um, we let you So go. it's called Bodies oh, nice. um, and it is about the experience of women in relationships throughout the years.
0: Oh, very good. <laughs> okay, so th- this is great to hear so much art as happened. Jennifer Humphreys and Christine Foley, thank you for both very much. For more information, connectionartcentre.ie is the place to go. We wish you both well. And uh, enjoy living in your heads with Dunkin' Donuts whenever else is meandering through. 51551, that's the text. Back after these. <laughs> uh, welcome. Sarah Martin is across from me. And, uh, well, there, there's been a glut of kind of restaurant and chefing-themed uh, stories in pop culture of late, like The Menu. Uh, which was a movie with Ray Fiennes, and you had the bear on the screen. And now we've the Irish entry. It's a new novel by Sarah Gil Martin. Good morning to you, Sarah.
5: Morning, Oliver. And
0: congratulations on service. Thank you. Uh, it's great, great crack. And as um, Well, food and fine dining are only the sideshow here. It's all about power, isn't it? Uh,
5: Yeah. So it's set, as you said, it's set in a a fine dining high-end restaurant in Dublin, um, over two timelines, kind of at the height of the Celtic Tiger and then 10 years later. But it is really a story about the abuse of power. Mm -hmm. Um, So it looks at that subject um, from three different perspectives. So from um, the perspective of a waitress, Hannah, uh, who works there this summer, she's 21, uh, the perspective of the chef who runs the restaurant, two Michelin-starred chef, Daniel Costello, and then the perspective um, of his wife, Julie, all focused in or around that kind of
0: topic. Great and fascinating characters. And I want to come back to the story, but I want to find out a little bit about you, first of all, Sarah, because this isn't your, your first rodeo. It's not your first novel. No. Uh, where, you're from Limerick originally, are you? From
5: Limerick originally, uh, mm. from Lizna And then I went to college. Where's that, that?
0: Is that uh, it, com- County Limerick?
5: Yeah, uh, it, it's kind of, it's on the Dublin road, so it's a couple of minutes oh, yes. away from Castletroy kind of UL area. So oh, I it's, see. It's yes, that yes. Side. Um So, yeah, I grew That's up there. That's fancy Limerick.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> 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 That's real. It's okay.
5: um, so, yeah, I grew up there and then I went to college in Dublin. I did English and Trinity. Yes. and German and then I did a Master's in Journalism and kind of from there I got into like I always knew I wanted to write mm. but I kind of got sidetracked by Journalism for a good few years.
0: So you don't consider Journalism writing?
5: I do but it's a different type of writing. True. true. Definitely. Yes. I mean you can't make things up for one thing or <laughs> you, get
0: well, a, you get in a lot of some, trouble. Some people do.
5: Um. So yeah I did Um. I was a business journalist for a while and then I the recession hit and I went travelling and when I came back I knew I wanted to get back into more arts journalism. So I started to work as a freelancer reviewing books for the Irish Times mm-hmm. and I've kind of been doing that um, for the last 10 or 12 years. And from there, because I was starting to read a lot of books, I um, I, I knew that I wanted to write myself. This so was
0: the world you wanted to dabble in. Yes. Uh, before I leave the critic, thing, is, is it hard being an Irish critic, particularly when you've got an Irish novel to review because we're in a small world?
5: It is a very small world, the Irish literary community. And I have to say, my first novel Dinner Party came out in 2021 yeah. and before that came out, I was um, kind of daunted by the whole idea that, you know, if I published a book and it was rubbish, not only might I not publish another book again, but I might also, you know, lose my day job, (laughs) which, you know, wouldn't be ideal. Um, And I think, I suppose, a lot of that pressure was probably just coming from inside my own head, Mm. Um, though my boss in the Irish Times, he did, he read a proof of... Dinner party about six months before it came out, and he sent me an email going, oh, "The relief exclamation mark uh, that <laughs> okay, he enjoyed it or that it was good." He didn't um, have to
0: pretend. No,
5: and he's not a man <laughs> given to exclamation marks. He's an old school journalist, ah. so um, yeah, I think he actually genuinely was very and the,
0: relieved. And that was a good success, but not that long ago. Dinner party. Though. No,
5: uh, yeah, it was it was two years ago. So it came out during right. COVID, um, so everything was very different. Uh, there were no launches, there was no literary festivals or anything I like see. that. So it was much quieter. You so didn't it,
0: get to celebrate your first. Uh,
5: well. I went for dinner with my husband outside and kind of uh, oh uh, like an alley off Baggett Street. Oh, just don't remind us. In October and it was freezing and it was great fun at the same time. But this, in a way, service kind of feels like another type of first novel because... Um, I've gotten to do the the things that you generally get to do with it. So that's been lovely, kind of going around to literary festivals. Uh, I was in Lestol, I was in Belfast and Dawkey uh, all in June. And it was great to meet readers because the thing with services, I found just from chatting to readers that so many people have worked in the service industry, you know, yeah. either through college or, you know, on their way up in their 20s or, or whatever, or, you know, to supplement other jobs that they might do if they work freelance. Um, so uh, people have a lot of stories about it. It's, mer-
0: it's a very, it's memorable thing to do, even if for a short period, isn't mm-hmm, it? Mm-hmm. Working in the service industry. What, yeah. uh, what sort of vibe do you get from everybody you speak to who worked in?
5: Um, there's, a, there's a, actually a good few uh, women who have come up to me who said they remember their times and that the book is quite reflective of it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of women who are saying uh, that you know their daughters who now work in the service industry, those kind of things are still going on. But you know we've we talked about the fun aspect of it as well um, because there there is an element of that's. Really that's really good fun.
0: Yeah, and the book starts off very well with with all the crack that people are having because it's the Celtic Tiger and we mm-hmm. we're kind of slightly afraid to say you know, looking back on it now, that when we are in the middle of it, it was there was kind of good crack, and there was a sense of hope, wasn't there? Yeah.
5: Now I was, I got about a year and a half to Celtic Tigers, so I kind of came out and uh, got like the tail end of it before things kind of fell apart. Right. Um. So it was all very exciting because I was just kind of out of college. I was earning money for the first time in my life, um, proper money, yeah. and so was the country. You know, we had money. Ireland had money for the first time in his life. That's what it felt like. You know, everyone was throwing it around and. I think as a writer, when I was looking to set this story about the abuse of power about individuals, um, that kind of personal story, I wanted kind of a bigger, wider political backdrop to set it against. And to me... The Celtic Tiger was just perfect because it was a time of great access, great opportunity, possibility, fun, money, all of that. But in retrospect, it wasn't really a very safe time to do business. And we've all been no. collectively paying for that for the last 15 years and it, counting.
0: It was like the zenith of male greed because because <laughs> it, well, obviously it's, you know, 2007, those naughties. It, it is men dominating all, the, all of the industries and it's, uh, you know, banking, building everything. You think the political establishment.
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've never
0: seen anyone draw the line between 2007 which is kind of the last year we had of uh, Celtic Tiger Mm -hmm. and exactly 10 years later is the Me Too movement the the new feminist wave isn't
5: it? Yeah and I mean it it worked first of all for the purposes of the novel to Mm -hmm. have two different timelines so you could kind of switch back and forth between the past and the present and it it just so happened that you know that 10 year period which is a good kind of time frame to do that within happened to be those two time frames so with the later timeline in service I wanted to set it um, just before Me Too took off so it's kind of at the start of 2017 so Dan. Daniel, um, who's the chef character in the book, he says it at one point. He's like, oh, you know, that Me Too nonsense won't catch on over here. It's American nonsense,
0: you know, yeah, not th-
5: here among... That was a
0: feeling at the time, wasn't it? Yeah,
5: among ordinary decent people. You know, <laughs> we, we don't need that over here. So there was that kind of nice um, kind of balance or contrast between the two areas. So it's obviously it's a
0: work of fiction, but he's a, he's a famous chef. Yes. And a huge personality. Absolutely. This character. <laughs>
5: um, yeah, so for me, I wanted to have multiple perspectives in this book because I think the subject lent itself well um, to have a kind of a level, of nuance with different views on it. So there's Hannah, the waitress, Julie, the chef's wife, and then Daniel, as you said. For me, the story didn't really feel complete unless I had his perspective. Um, he was quite an interesting character to write. Um, I found him quite compelling. I wanted to get inside his head. Mm. I'm interested in general in like how people operate, especially when they're under pressure or in trouble, um, how they might operate when they don't think people are watching. So Mm. I was very interested in trying to get into that mindset and you know he's at a stage in his life he's in his late 50s at the moment or in the in the second time frame of the novel yeah. and there's a lot of kind of ego and vanity about him mm. he's revered he's admired um, and there's kind of a false sense of humility about that as all well that I find quite entertaining to write you know he kind of goes around and he's like I'm a man of the people like you or me if you open my presses at home I just have ketchup or mayonnaise, um, but really you know, he doesn't really believe that at all. It's yeah. just kind of his shtick.
0: But you give good context because his background is, is working class mm-hmm. and he pulls himself up. Uh, from nowhere really doesn't he yeah there's Uh, a lot
5: of kind of admirable traits about him as well like he goes into the industry at 15 and Mm. he kind of works his way up from like you know cleaning out the bins peeling potatoes right up to the level that he's at now which is to own his own restaurant and have two Michelin stars
0: isn't it amazing that the sort of old world uh, misogyny was a woman's places in the kitchen Mm -hmm. but the the most vaunted people from the kitchen tended to be kind of male uh, celebrity chefs who were allowed to kind of talk about anything from how the country's run to uh, how people eat and what they order in restaurants. There was a period, wasn't there, around the Celtic Tiger, where they were just in the news all the time.
5: Yeah, it seemed to be an awful lot, particularly in the service industry, you know, that the focus was on kind of male celebrity chefs. I think yeah. that's changing now. Yeah. Um, my understanding is even the way that restaurants are run is changing a little bit. You know, there are more women in the kitchen. There are more women at the top. And also that kind of hierarchical structure that we see in restaurants, because, you know, there's it's almost military um, because there's such an intense environment. It needs to be run in that kind of hierarchical yeah, way yeah. I think that just anecdotally from hearing people talk I think that's kind of changed a little bit in the restaurant industry
0: and so the other character then is Hannah who's at the other end of the spectrum mm-hmm. she's a young woman coming yeah. in to do the summer job basically
5: yeah she's at and sorry about the pun but it's actually quite hard to talk about this book without getting my food puns in but she's, <laughs> yeah, at yeah. The, she's at the bottom of the food chain <laughs> Okay, you right. know um, so yeah he's at the top she's at the bottom yeah. um, and mo- the way the hierarchy r- uh, works in tea which is the restaurant in the book is that a lovely mo-
0: obnoxious name just, just the just, just tea just yeah, tea yeah. yeah the
5: rest <laughs> of it's redacted um, is that you know, most of the men are at the top um, all of the chefs are male the manager's male the bartenders are male and then the waitresses mm-hmm. tend to be female and even within the waitresses group themselves there's a kind of hierarchy there's the head waitress male and then there's Hannah who kind of comes in at you know, the, the very end, um, last one in the door, basically. So she's learning. And for the reader, she's the guide through the restaurant world. So I did that quite deliberately. I wanted the reader to see it through her eyes because she's just overawed and so excited um by this world. And it's a very compelling world to her. You know, it's yeah. colourful and sensual and there's a lot going on that she wouldn't have seen before.
0: Uh, did you work in in this trade yourself? Is yeah, that where, okay. yeah, I
5: did. Now, it has to be said never in Dublin, just oh, for right, libel yeah, reasons yeah. apart from anything else. <laughs> right, okay. um, I worked for many years uh, during college and during my 20s. Um, a lot of it in Europe or, or America. Um, so I know the world. I know the kind of ins and outs, the it's good and bad. It's kind of the, the same no matter where
0: it is, isn't I it? I think
5: because so, yeah. It, well, it's. I think sometimes it depends on the level of restaurant you go in. Like I've worked in cafes and it's it's much less intense and it's much yes. different. It's a lower pace and it's you get to chat to the customers. Customers a little bit more rather than perform for them. And I think there is that element of performance when it comes to High-end dining, and yes. that can make the restaurant very fun because you know it's almost like a show. It has that buzz mm. of performance. Um, you know, tables are literally set and reset. Uh, you know, sometimes multiple times a day, things get cleared away, plates get thrown. Uh, you know, into, into the dishwasher, and everything kind of starts again. So you can reset your mistakes. Hannah says that in the book, you can reset your life if you want to just go back in the next day. Every
0: day. Uh, did you live in the? Or did you work in the intense part of it?
5: Uh, Yeah, I did. Absolutely. And like, I found that to be a lot of fun at times. Um, There's kind of an adrenaline, a buzz to it. Um, And I guess also kind of a sense of achievement in a way, you know, you've gotten all your, when you're working at this kind of heightened sense, you've gotten all the... All, all, the, all the tickets are done all the customers have been served and at the end of the night you know you can count your efforts in in, in tips and kind of hard cash yeah. which is how it used to be done in, in America anyway
0: Because you're you're not being paid very much but you feel part of this huge um, important feeling regime
5: Yeah and quite often uh, in America you wouldn't be paid anything at all the wage you wouldn't be getting a wage Just so you, you're working for your tips Um, so yeah there is that kind of sense of you're you're doing something or, or you're doing well if, if you can see it at the end of the night but also there's a I guess the more negative side of that kind of stressful high end mm. environment um, is that, you know, if things go wrong, um, people can get treated very badly. And, you know, that can just be stuff that, you know, like the wrong plate goes to the wrong table and it's, you know, blown up to gargantuan proportions. Yeah. The end or of the world. as we see in the book, you know, th- things go wrong in another kind of way with the after parties and all of that kind of stuff that goes on at the restaurant um, mm. after hours when the customers go home.
0: Do you think that's all? Over, because of the pressure in the kitchen, there's obviously things thrown at people if they mm-hmm. make mistakes, mm-hmm. and uh, then there's the the drink involved after hours and that's when things take a very serious turn in the book Yeah, uh, and that's that's where we come into this Me Too era uh, but, but did, did you witness the kind of bad doings uh, in in your period of working in the Well I definitely
5: saw a plate of spinach go flying past my head one day and make really? a fine nice green splat against a wall but it didn't actually hit me or um, <laughs> or any of the other waiters who were in the kitchen. And
0: you're sort of saying oh that was grand because it didn't hit me.
5: Yeah you kind of are and then you kind of normalise it at yeah, the Yeah and then there's four more plates to bring to the next table and you're gone on and you're back in and you're whatever. And at the end of the shift, you know, somebody apologises or maybe they don't, depending on you know, uh, on, on who it was, who threw the
0: plate. Do you kind of think back all these years later and go, that was insane, people shouldn't be behaving like that.
5: Yeah, I mean there's an element to that and also I think there's an element with, you know, I would have been in my... Early 20s, I think maybe even 19 at the time. So, you know, you can see things that don't look right or do, don't seem right. But I, I certainly didn't have the language for it at the time. So, like, I knew yes. it in my head. Yeah. I didn't have the language and I didn't have the time to think about it because you're on to the next thing. But certainly in retrospect, you can kind of go, oh, no, look, that 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 was a bit of a mad reaction, you know, to whatever perceived mistake was going on yeah. at the time. You know?
0: but, but screaming and roaring abuse is kind of treated as normal, wasn't it? Isn't it?
5: Yeah, and sometimes it could be very... Like, sometimes it could be funny, you know, the stuff that would come out or the the stuff that you would hear. Um, But there is that kind of sense of... Energy needed or adrenaline needed in the mm. kitchen, and I understand it to to some extent um, to keep things going. Because if things do go wrong, you know it's not really the waitress that gets blamed on the outside. You know, if if a critic is not served properly, it's the chef's name that is, um, you know, the one that people are going to remember, or they are ultimately the one held responsible mm. for things.
0: Why is this the only trade where that kind of behavior is is acceptable? Because there are other worlds you can you can assume that need to move things along and have adrenaline, but. It doesn't seem like any other industry really accepts the screaming and roaring. Is it something to do with the heat? Is it something to do with...
5: Maybe the heat, maybe just the fast pace of it. Um, mm. Maybe also just the fact that it's so transient, you know, that idea that like, you know, people are in and out. Everything kind of gets, as I said earlier, everything kind of gets reset and reset again. So things get forgotten very yeah. quickly. Um and I don't think you get that necessarily in other industries.
0: So um only give away as much as you want to about <laughs> what happens because we're having great fun for a good section of the novel and we're getting to know everybody. Yeah. And then we go into the into the twenty seventeen era mm-hmm. and, and what's going on then, what's happened.
5: Um, So basically, there's been an allegation of sexual assault against the chef in 2017. The big celebrity. The big celebrity. And it's come out on social media. And that's kind of how we see about it in in the book. But it's going to court. Hmm. And because of that, Hannah kind of remembers her experiences 10 years earlier. And she kind of has to come to her own. Um, She's kind of got to go back into that time where she's tried to leave behind her and um, kind of reconcile it or or try to come to another... um, really to try and see if she's going to help the person the the person in 2017 who has yeah. made the allegations I suppose and, and for it her it was
0: just a summer but now suddenly it's all come back into a kind of a defining moment for her isn't it
5: exactly yeah And I think that's kind of reflective a little bit um, or can be reflective of trauma or how trauma works. You know, that you think you're getting on with your life and then every so often you're just kind of shunted back to the past. Almost like you're on a treadmill and you don't really realise it. Um, So I wanted that very much to come across in the
0: book. But you also do something you're very smart about. You you make us kind of question our own judgment uh, Mm -hmm. on on the chef himself and also the nature of how things emerge in social media and where they go.
5: Yeah, Um, So I I definitely, as a writer, I'm kind of drawn to grey areas. I don't particularly like, you know, black or white or as a reader, I don't love being told, you know, what to do. Um, I like to make up my own mind. Yeah, That's what I'm trying to do with service. So you see the three different perspectives. They're split equally in terms of chapters, structure, word count, all of that kind of thing. Um, so that the reader can kind of get inside the heads of the characters and see how they think and see how they operate and maybe see how things come about themselves. So it's very much that they'd make their own mind up It's a it.
0: clever, It's a clever place to, to dwell in. Do you look at, uh, when you go into a restaurant yourself as a customer, do you, <laughs> <laughs> do you experience things a little bit differently now, having gone through the experience of writing this book?
4: Um,
5: yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm a good few years since I've waitress now, um, but... Went back in that time, particularly, um, you know, I would especially come back to Ireland, and it would have been before the time that you know tipping would have been what it is now.
0: Yeah, I used to always the Celtic Tiger as well. Be
5: trying to tip everyone twenty percent, and my dad and uh, various people would be like, "What are you doing? <laughs> this is not America." Um, so you do you like when you when you work in service, you 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 see the human beings more than I think necessarily other people do, and that's one thing that kind of comes across mm-hmm. in the book with like the moneyed world of it. Of um, and I guess Yes, a lot of the clientele are men. So there's a, you know, businessmen, politicians, that kind of thing, particularly in 2007, um, that there's a line in the book where one of the car, or the waitress kind of points out that the, person at the table is more concerned about the origin of the chicken than they are about the person who's literally standing yes. in front of them, yes. serving them the chicken, you know. And that's mad. You the know? It is mad, isn't I it? I think that's just kind of mad.
0: But it is a kind of a strange theatre and uh, you're almost mm-hmm. supposed to blank out the people serving yeah,
5: you. Yeah, th- that almost, you're you're they're, you're invisible.
0: But sometimes if you have a chat with the person serving you, you're nearly holding them back and you are <laughs> slightly to try to leave yeah, the table. Yeah, you can kind of
5: see the panic you in you their You have eyes. to find
0: the balance. Yeah. Uh, now, you're, you're a critic, obviously, of novels yourself. What's it like being on the other end on the receiving end of uh, reviews?
5: Uh, it can be tough. And again, going back to that, especially with the first novel, I found it very daunting just to see. Um, thankfully, uh, they were overwhelmingly positive. I did get one kind of negative review, but I had... Um, had <laughs> it's the th- one
0: you remember? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely.
5: Imprinted in my head. Um, but I, I'd, it wasn't the first one. So the first two I got were positive. So thankfully it was, I think it was about three or four. So I was able to... Just kind of, you know, take it on the chin. You know, it does, it does sting for a couple of days. Um, yeah. But I think the best thing you can do as a writer is just, right, try and metabolize it in any way you can. Put it behind you and just get on with it. Because if you dwell on it, you're, it's, I think it's detrimental to your own practice as a writer as well. If you can't move on from those things. And also kind of to remember that it is just one person's opinion. And yeah. particularly if you're getting other reviews that are saying, you know, positive things maybe the reviewer is wrong and just kind of put it behind you. Should
0: should the balance be that you should treat both uh, the good and the bad reviews kind of equally going, don't let them big you up too much. Yeah,
5: completely. And also don't
0: let them slap you down too far. Yeah, but (laughs) I think... There's a science in the balance.
5: Yeah, and I I think it's maybe human nature to, well, certainly it is for me to kind of focus in on the bad one and and, and remember that one instead of, you know, the, once somebody says something good, you know, that's gone. Good luck.
0: (laughs) Yeah, brilliant. When you have the book out, so Sarah Sarah is, uh, is is good crack so, thank you very much and, and congratulations on the book. Do you already start working on the next thing the, the, while this is out? Have you already done that?
5: Uh, yeah, I've started. Um, it's a it's a novel about uh, two couples and their messy interpersonal relationships.
0: Oh, so you like going to these kind <laughs> of uh, messy <laughs> marriages and relationships. So, from dinner party to this. Serical so Martin, congratulations and the best of luck. Thank you very much and you're all very welcome back now this weekend and all the weekends looking into August uh, are going to be huge uh, all over the country the, the the country shows The we're coming into the peak of the Irish agricultural show season so if you're looking for brand new machinery to buy or you have a pony for show jumping or you've got a, a fine example of a calf for showing in competition or you just want to look into the Ford Cortina in mint condition and have a bit of crack around the place maybe a little bit of country music and drink tea in the rain no better place than an agricultural show Ray Brady's on the line he's the president of the Irish Shows Association. Good morning to you Ray.
2: Good morning Oliver.
0: This is now peak season isn't it for the Irish Show Association and all the stuff that's happening up and down the, the by roads and the back roads of Ireland.
2: It is surely yeah our first show would have been in May and they go right oh. through until the beginning of October um, so we're in the we're in the peak of it at the moment yep. quite busy this weekend I think we have seven shows on alone so there's one today actually in Carberry and County Cork so there's not, there not a lot of shows are midweek but No Um, We do have some
0: Are they mostly one day affairs?
2: They would be all uh, One day Virtually all one day But there is some That uh, is held over two days
0: Where is your local show Ray Brady?
2: I'm uh, from Arvon County Cabin So my local show Is actually in Arvon here And um, Look I got involved A long time ago uh, Showing an animal And kind of just got involved And kind of in the build of the field and then ended up stewarding and then I ended up as an officer and was chairperson for seven years.
0: What goes on in the build of the field you said? What what happens there?
2: Well generally the landowners um you know some fields are just rented out for, for the week leading up to the show and you you know, you have to come and build it say put down posts for putting up fencing to you know, temporary fencing. Um building the rings that the animals are shown in, um, helping to get marquees up and lined out. And, you know, they have to be kitted out inside and putting up signs. Um, that's just kind of All get, correct. getting the general appearance of it right. When you,
0: you start Arva County Calf, that's where the three provinces meet. It's way over the, 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 the leg of, of Cavan, isn't it? Uh, so it, right, yeah. what, what your first? Do you, you remember your first show. So, you were what age were you and you're showing a calf?
2: Well, I think it was either nine or ten. But, like, I would have been at the show even younger than that but that was the first time I um, actually exhibited an animal. Now, we may have partaken in some kind of the school competitions but uh, no for it was that was the first time we we had an animal in it.
0: Yeah. And, and how like, it's, it's th- that's the thing I've been to loads of these shows myself and I always wondered what goes on how does the animal win the you know what is it about an animal that wins the competition?
2: Well um, if you would we'll say if you take we'll say on the cattle classes um there's a certain amount of it is in just the presentation there's also the ring craft which is kind of how the handler um, handles that animal in the ring Um, but the judge will say the judge that's there or kind of knows the breeds uh, knows the type of animal that is kind of of good stock as it's called but um, it's just kind of a prestigious thing to win win any of the the prizes in any show so the the judge (laughs) is You know, there's as someone said to me, there's prizes and surprises, but you know, like it's they generally do the do it right now. There's nothing I ever see wrong, but um, it's it's always down to the quality of the animal and there's also the the, the exhibitor and how they carry themselves in the ring and how they present.
0: Because uh, it's it's a very serious affair. There's uh, there's a lot of people kind of staring at the answer. So it's kind of a silent affair. It's like um, livestock chess or something goes on in that part. of <laughs> But there's loads more that goes on. If no one has ever been to one of these shows, what do they, you know, what should they expect if they do go to one?
2: Well, look, they're, they're wide and uh, varied. No two shows would ever be the same, but the elements would probably be the same at a lot. Uh, so obviously, if you're element classes, and that can be you know, that's cattle, sheep, goats, horses, ponies. Uh, there'd obviously be some show jumping at some shows. Um, yeah. Then you'd have the home industries. You know, that would include your arts, crafts, bacon, needlework, home produce, fruit, vegetables, and then school sections. So there's, there's something there for everyone to, you know, to exhibit.
0: Loads because, of machines.
2: Yes, and obviously the, some of the shows there would have uh, machinery and new techniques and Information, you you know, there's lots of um, trade stands at a lot of shows, and there's information there, and um, you know, people trying to sell their wares, and we're we're proud of that, like that. The, it's quite varied, so there should be something for everyone.
0: Yeah, uh, and old machines as well. That's a particularly um, a popular one, isn't it? In these shows.
2: Yeah, um, I suppose the vintage part of it is. Uh, it's not at every show, but at some of the shows oh. there would be. Um, Vintage displays, and it's it's important too that we remember how we, we all um, we all got here. This wasn't how we all got, um, you know, how it was produced. How food was produced before, and the techniques that was used before. And uh, there's usually um, an area set aside for that at most shows, so um, it's important to see that too.
0: Yeah, I was at the one in Knockbridge there uh, a lock of years ago, as I might say, up at Knockbridge in County Louth, and there was loads of vintage stuff. There was endless Ford Cortinas, but it was it was fascinating just to see some of the really early machines still in full working order, uh, thrashing and all of that.
2: Oh yes, no, that, that's um, the people that would have them. That would go round to the shows. They have them tip top and in working condition, and it's you know for a younger generation even to see how it was done. Not all about the big, uh, the big four wheel drive and the big machinery. Hmm. Uh, it had to start somewhere, and um, that, that machinery was um, it was really well made. It's the first thing I would say, and it's really well preserved.
0: There are people who re- literally drive their vintage wares. They'll they, from village to village for the summer, and it, uh,
2: absolutely, it's absolutely yeah. There's it, it's, and there is you will see at different events there that the same vehicles are are, are turning up, but they're road legal. They're on the road, and yeah. they get there and. To display them and they're proud of them.
0: Uh, how big is the, is the the local show phenomenon? I mean, how many of them are there around the country?
2: Well, there's over 130 shows and let's say the association that I'm president of, uh, we would have over 130 affiliated to us. And look, they range in sizes, obviously Tullamore being the largest one. Mm. It's quite prestigious. It's logistically, it's it's in a great location because it's, very close to the centre of Ireland and you have right down to kind of specialised uh, shows that would have maybe just specific classes. So, we have a lot of shows of different sizes, but over 130.
0: There's a great text coming in on the shows happening all around the country. Note the Skibbereen Agricultural Show is on today and the um, the Adara Agricultural Show on the 12th of August, great day out in Donegal, says Kevin. There's a vintage tractor day this Sunday in Waterville in County Kerry, the Ivory vintage club hundreds of tractors there and someone said one of the best agricultural shows in Ireland is the Balmoral Show which is now held at Hesh outside Lisburn in County Antrim it's absolutely class I highly recommend a visit to you I think BBC covers that one actually
2: Sorry? It's,
0: the Balmoral Show
2: Oh yes uh, Balmoral that, is well it's just outside our it's, it's outside our um, organisation but Yeah uh, a lot of people would go to the to, to, to the events, and yeah, Balmoral is a there's so a, a north south well.
0: distinction then. So um, the the Irish Show Association, you're you're dealing with the hundred plus that's down here.
2: No, it's um it's it's an all island organisation. Oh, okay. So we would have ten shows in Northern Ireland under our umbrella.
0: Uh, and you also the, the who runs the shows? It's a lot of volunteers, aren't there?
2: Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that uh, I've been quite um. Delighted to see is actually that the it's always done by volunteers and the energy that they put into this into all of, all the shows all the events is incredible. They you know like the man hours that it takes to actually get a show together, not only on the day but uh, in the build up to it. But the meetings, yeah. the organising of sponsors, the organising of let's say if you're hiring in equipment. There's there's months and months of planning in that, and it's not it's not lost on me because when I arrive at the shows, you see that, and you're all greeted with a smile. People are um, delighted to, to supposed to see me there, but they're also delighted that they're able to run their event. So it it's it's and it goes back for when these shows started, which you know some of the oldest shows are nearly 180 years old, or maybe even mm-hmm. older, and it's incredible that people have continued the the traditions to keep the show and keep their event. Um, in their areas
0: why did they start actually what, what was the reason for do you, uh, the history of them how did they begin
2: well I suppose it was there was a few things people were meeting kind of like um, like a, a fair day or that but they were meeting and then they were showcasing what the project was and uh, their animals or um, you know whatever they had baked or whatever and that was that was kind of to showcase that and um it became a way of trade also, but it wouldn't generally have been trade on the day on it, but it was to showcase um to showcase uh, produce, yeah, the other thing about that too is it became a social event mm. and it has grown and has stayed through to that being a social event, but that's how it would have started
0: because if you wanted to find out the mood of of the country um especially outside of Dublin, and attitudes to certain matters you'd you'd measure it at one of these wouldn't you still?
2: Well, When you're on a show now, uh, there's a lot of uh, knowledge and uh, a lot of wisdom at shows. So, um, yeah, if you wanted to get something sorted or you wanted to gauge how things are on the ground, uh, definitely it would be a good place to be because there is a massive social side to shows as well. So it is a good place to meet up.
0: Now, someone says here, don't forget the baking, the jams and crafts. Are they still part of the show? I won a bag of peat moss for the best wildflower collection when I was 10, says Ruben from Cove. Well, you mentioned Absolutely, that anyway. That's yeah. the craft yeah. is still going, it's aren't they?
2: Vital too. It's, <laughs> yeah. um, of course it is. Yes, and that and that's part of showing. Is it's not that it's neglected. It's sometimes forgotten, but um, it's every bit as important as your main competitions in the an- animal classes. It is. It's a it's a brilliant thing because you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be professional or anything like that. You can uh, enter and rock up with whatever you have there and put it against others and see if it wins and of course the wildflowers and, and pot moss peace it, it was a nice prize for you but it was uh, you know it, 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 there's kind of monetary value on stuff now so
0: yeah, yeah, there is, and you never know where because you, you could you could be practicing like yourself at ten years old, bring in a calf, win the competition, and then all of a sudden you're the president of the Irish Shows Association. Ray Brady, it's been it's been good crack talking to you. Thanks a million for. By the way, if anyone wants to see where the Irish Show is there is there a website where we can see where all the shows that are under your umbrella uh, are happening around the place?
2: Yes, I know there there is. yeah. so it's www.irishshows.org.
0: irishshows.org. So, org. Org and you'll have everything yep. there
2: and it's look and there is obviously a Facebook page there as well and Instagram but there is individual shows would have their own Facebook page and their own websites but that is the national one and we also have a guidebook too so
0: listen um, the best of luck I know you're into the busy season now sure um, uh, look after yourself and be safe and thanks to all the volunteers who are looking after these country shows and enjoy yourself
2: thanks very much Oliver and maybe see you at one yeah so, I
0: might see you at one of them I'll be on the website looking <laughs> to see if I can find one around to, the place uh,
2: thanks to everybody that does turn up and yeah. I hope that uh, when they come out if they haven't been at one that they enjoy them and we're delighted that we're able to help in bringing these events to the public
0: oh, absolutely it's uh, it's important to put your your foot up on the the the, the back tyre of a tractor or stare at a Pete for a couple of hours and uh, <laughs> go from the, the horses ploughing all the way up to the biggest John Deere you've ever seen in your life the size of a house. Ray Brady, President of the Irish Show Association. Good luck and enjoy. Slong a fall. And you're all very welcome. Once again, 51551 is our text. Kira King is across from me. Good morning, Kira King. Good morning. Presenter, you've been on the late, um, the late, very late, late date. Yes. uh, All (laughs) week. And and we made you watch these films before you went to work here. I went
6: to see Barbie yesterday evening before I came in to do a late date last night. Yeah. So that was a wild evening. A wild evening.
0: Um, So let's judge you first of all. So you do, because you do film reviews. I've heard you do, um, see you do film reviews. Are you a film critic?
6: I wouldn't call myself a film critic because I don't think that's fair on my friends who are actual film critics in the media in what, Ireland. What, hang on
0: a What <laughs> makes a film critic compared to someone who just watches a film and tells us what they think about it?
6: Um, they probably would describe it better than I would describe it.
0: Ah, don't be doing Do you yourself know? But down. Anyway. Don't be doing yourself down. Okay, so we've got two massive differently different vibes going on. Is that fair to say?
6: Very fair to say. Yeah,
0: well, we use some clips to stabilise ourselves so we can see just how different these vibes are. Um, this is well this is gonna be the Barbie vibe okay and this is from this is from the Barbie official soundtrack oh that's a that's a boppy boppy vibe and this is the (laughs) Oppenheimer world
4: (laughs) (laughs) Um,
6: light and dark
0: oof very Christopher Nolan. Very, I'm going to have to bring... So that, that actual, Sorry. that
6: sound clip, that's what it felt like to watch Oppenheimer for three hours. Uh-huh. That's what it felt like, That what was going on in my mind, watching Oppenheimer <laughs> for those three hours. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, remind us what Oppenheimer is about okay. and, and why is it a film?
6: It is Cillian Murphy as J. Robert Oppenheimer and he is seen as the father of the atomic bomb and it tells the story of the man who led the United States development of the first nuclear weapons during World War II. Okay,
0: so it's bundle laughs.
6: It's a bundle of laughs, yeah. So is
0: it a character study? Is there, is there action in it? It doesn't feel like there could be action in something about a scientist.
6: There actually is. There, yeah, there is. It, it is a telling of, it starts with, uh, in 1954, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, he's called before a secret hearing of the Atomic Energy Commission to look into his parent leanings towards communism early in his career. Oh, okay, this sounds really the heavy, hunt right? hunt
0: begins, yeah. And
6: obviously the story of how Oppenheimer became the face and father of the atomic bomb that ended up killing thousands of people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki mm-hmm. is told it's told very accurately Um and that's that's another reason why the movie is three hours long there's an awful lot to fit in around the story of Oppenheimer and how it got to
0: those particular trials and it has a huge cast oh my god the cast vague.
6: is absolutely incredible obviously Killian Murphy Emily Blunt Matt Damon first, uh, Florence Pew's in it uh, Kenneth Branagh Robert Downey Jr and Josh Hartnett actually makes an appearance So oh yeah. I haven't seen him in a it's movie he's a, a bit of a
0: comeback isn't he it? yeah
6: he's, re- he's excellent in this and also I don't know are, is there people out there that are fans of Drake and Josh it was on Nickelodeon well Josh right. Peck appears in this I think he was Josh in Drake and Josh and he has a very important role in the movie and it's just it was kind of it was a bit wild to see all these famous actors popping up you know at different I stages see. over yes. the course in of a very hours. very
0: serious film
6: in a really serious film but then as I said at a very important part of the movie you've got Josh Peck popping up and you're like oh there's your man from Drake and Josh so a little bit disconcerting
0: just a little bit distracting. Uh, so it's three hours now It is. So films better be good if they're going to be three hours. Yeah
6: and I would definitely recommend going to the bathroom beforehand. <laughs> okay So you, so you can I'm, get you can sit For for three I'm hours I'm middle and watch aged it. now
0: That wouldn't even do it um, So uh, go to the bathroom And then don't drink anything yeah, <laughs> during, Don't drink anything
6: Just sit there and watch it It's extremely tense And exciting But uh, it is Extremely long And you I would recommend Having just a little Do a little bit of homework Before you go and see this movie And I know you're like ah. What? Do a little bit of homework I just want to go to the cinema And experience something but I found that I was, you know, I was kind of sitting at the edge of my seat for lots of different reasons, but also just to keep track of what was actually going on and what was unfolding because there's an awful lot to unpack.
0: Okay, so it's the it's a film for the smarts and uh, to make you feel, so you can go around town and go, yeah, I thought it was my favourite film of the year, actually, Oppenheimer.
6: I mean, there's probably an element of that as well, but it's one of the best movies that I've seen in the cinema in a long time. And I recommend seeing it in the cinema. Don't wait to, mm. until it's released on whatever streaming service because there's one particular scene where they it's called the Trinity test it's where they're um, testing the atomic bomb and there's something that Christopher Nolan does, which just leaves you at the edge of your seat because you know what happens. History has told you what has happened. Yeah. Okay,
0: they test the bomb, but they use the bomb. Yeah, so you're so he feels bad about yeah, it. Yeah,
6: you're so immersed in the movie that you're like, oh my god, is this going to work? Is all these years of research and all the billions of dollars that have been oh, put right. into this is it going to
0: work? That is quite an achievement.
6: And then the, the the test happens, and what happens a couple of minutes later um, in the cinema after they they test the atomic bomb you feel like you were there. You feel like you were in the the deserts in New Mexico when they tested the bomb. It, it's just absolutely stunning.
0: That's great. So it's three hours. So go early uh, to yeah. the film. Uh, but it's it, it's and it's very, very good acting. They're oh already God. talking look, about Oscars, not this is
6: the role that Killian Murphy deserved. And for me, like there's all this talk now that he's finally a leading man. He's always been a leading man oh, yeah, to me. Yeah. The man has just been honing his craft for over 20 years. And like this is going to sound pretentious. I don't see Killian Murphy as an actor. I see him as an
0: artist. Oh, that's what But right. I was very, yeah, it's very worried about him. It's um, very pretentious.
6: But I was worried about him when I came away from the movie because, like, he steals every single scene, Can I just say. Uh. Even when he's sitting in the background of a scene, he's stealing the scene. Like, this is an immense amount of work from him. But, like, it's so... You're just anxious for him. It's like the Irish mother and me kind of walked away, and Ooh. I was like, God, I really hope Killian Murphy is okay now. I hope that role didn't take too much out of him because he just absolutely encapsulated the the character of Oppenheimer. You
0: have West of Ireland worry, don't you? I
6: do. I, I don't do. like. The, <laughs> I,
0: I'm afraid of the bit where you said you need homework I, I, because I'm a super fan of the Rest Is History podcast, and I, I avoided their mm-hmm. Oppenheimer story because I said, Oh, they don't want to ruin the film if I find out too much about him.
6: No, <laughs> and I understand that, and I know what I've said. You know, you shouldn't have to do homework before you go into to see no. a movie. And Christopher Nolan and the actors, they do do a good enough job. Obviously, what you know what's going on. I think maybe that was more a personal thing for me mm. that I would have liked to have done a little bit more homework. I knew like yeah. maybe 10 to 15 percent of that particular period of time. And I think I would have enjoyed it more mm. had I had known exactly kind of what was going on. But that, maybe that's just like a personal
0: Film, so yeah, I think it's a good film. And Christopher Nolan is the ultimate film snob, isn't he? he he's shot this on 70 millimeter film and says it should be watched like that. And you can watch it in Ireland, can't you? In the iPhone,
6: that's how I thought. They it have the incredible. actual film, yeah, it's yeah. amazing, absolutely an amazing. Actual yeah.
0: film. Not the, but yeah. they have a, a film reel, whereas everything else is not. So, um, from that, then to um, <laughs> to, to Barbie.
6: It's almost like going from, uh, you know, a a dark grey mushroom cloud to a pink cloud of fluffiness and and (laughs) fun and and frivolous frolics is the only word to describe it. Yeah, I went to see Barbie last night and uh, yeah, it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. So I think we're at the stage now there's been how many weeks and months of marketing around Oppenheimer and Barbie and I don't know about you mm-hmm. but I'm just so glad that I got to see the movies that it's done now and we can all move on with <laughs> our lives <laughs> okay,
0: okay.
6: Um, Like look at my nails Oliver <laughs> Yes you look were at wearing my nails. pink nails Pink and glittery nails yeah. You know uh, I can't believe I've been influenced but I have
0: The clips on the screen today are pink so everyone yes. is uh, that it's gone into our heads And you know it? what They're isn't subconsciously... that fun though
6: isn't that fun like last night at the screening like people were dressed up in pink people were having a couple of drinks for themselves it's something fun to celebrate in a summer that well the weather hasn't been exactly great so anything you know there's been a lot
0: of misery around a lot of
6: misery so anything that could bring a bit of fun and a bit of crack for you and your mates well then I'm all for that is
0: it the antidote to a miserable summer Barbie though
6: it is or is it a big ad it's not a big ad. No, and I'll and I'll argue about that. I see, I did not grow up with Barbies. Uh, I wasn't a Barbie girl, so I wasn't going into this movie full of nostalgia for my childhood or anything like that. And Greta Garbig, she does a really good job of it not being a complete and utter ad for Mattel.
0: Okay, so mm-hmm. she manages to... Pull, she does, Because she, yeah. she's well-known feminist director of exactly. uh, Lady Bird and Little Women. Yeah. One of the, the little... The, 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 the definitive one now that everyone really enjoys.
6: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: No? Okay. Oh, you're doing Not a film... Not my favourite c- one. You're Not doing a film one. critic yeah. thing, you see. Yes, you are mm. a film critic. Sure, whatever um, you think, Oliver. I'm to go. to uh, unlearn all the lessons I learned from uh, Greta Gurr, who's worked... Did you wear pink last
3: night? Ask I did
6: I actually... And this, I promise you, I didn't do this on purpose because because I was coming into work afterwards, I just threw on a comfortable black jumper and a, a pair of black pants. So <laughs> I kind of looked like Oppenheimer Barbie um, <laughs> more so is. than anything else. Um,
0: Billie Eilish Barbie? She's on the soundtrack. She is strangely. on the soundtrack
6: as well, yes. yeah. soundtrack is fun is like, it, yeah it
0: is um, really fun those, uh, you, the, everyone know, remember Aqua Barbie Aqua yeah, Barbie, Barbie from mid 90s I think so uh, Nicki Minaj let have a clip of Nicki Minaj's version
3: Stop playing with them, and I'm about like the Barbie I'm a doll but I still want to party pink felt like I'm ready to bend I'm a 10 so I am pulling a can like Jazzy Stacey Nikki all of the Barbies is pretty all of the Barbies is bad it, girls and we ain't playing tag
0: so it's more sampled in the background. Yeah. So they're not going to teach them the uh, 90s version of, of Barbie, it seems. Um, is it, it's, it's a comedy.
6: It is a comedy. It is extremely funny. Is there a plot? There is a plot, actually. Um, so Barbie and Ken are living in Barbie world where everything mm. is perfect and everyone is happy and women own their houses and the Kens kind of, they go along with what the Barbies want to do. Uh-huh. And then Margot Robbie who plays Barbie uh, she suddenly gets uh, an existential crisis and starts thinking about death and then she develops cellulite. Uh-huh. Uh, for the stereotypical Barbie this is just this is end of the world stuff. So mm-hmm. she has to go to the real world to try and remedy the situation. Oh dear. And Ken played by Ron Gosling goes along with her. So she has to find her uh-huh. owner in the re- real world to, to try and um, solve this issue so that Barbie world idea. doesn't implode.
0: And obviously the real world is, is completely terrible. Horrendous. The <laughs> real world
6: is horrendous and they discover that. They discover that Barbie isn't exactly liked and celebrated in the real world and um, she also discovers that there's a patriarchy that exists but Ken also discovers this and <laughs> brings back all these ideals to Barbie world and you know all chaos kind of breaks out. And but they go is- back
0: Been pretty they yeah. go back to Barbie world. They do indeed. Yeah. Okay.
6: yeah. And Ken brings all his new ideals of all the men that he met uh, in the real world. And, you know, honestly, if I was a man sitting in the cinema last night, I would be feeling very uncomfortable because men don't really? come out of it looking great.
0: Yeah. Oh, so the feminism um, is intact in Greta yeah. Gerwig's world. What I will world. say,
6: and maybe this is something that I shouldn't say after coming out of a, of a movie about Barbies, is that Ryan Gosling is the star of the show for me. as Ken. He is so funny. I, I wanted more of him in the movie. Um, and I think this is an incredible role that he's taken on. And like both Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, they knew exactly what they were doing with this movie. It's a mm. movie that's very self-aware.
2: Yeah.
6: Um, there's a lot of gags in it where, you know, they're talking to the camera and they know the ridiculousness of the spectacle that is Barbie. But it is very funny.
0: I mean, it's it's got mixed reviews, hasn't it? Uh, and one of the reviews, I think, is that the, the film about Barbie has ended up being The Ken Show. Is there going to be a Ken spin off, I wonder?
6: Well, I don't know is there going to be a, well I mean the, there is definitely it. yeah there's potential for it um, I don't think that's the message that, that we should take away from it but that's just my honest opinion Ken Byron, played by Ron Gosling was was my favourite character in it and I wanted to Margaret Robbie was perfect as Barbie I mean she's just she's stunningly gorgeous and she's mm-hmm. an incredible actress and she played the stereotypical Barbie that's her actual title by the way um, in the movie and she played it brilliantly and there was moments of it that you know there was nostalgia and there was moments of it that were actually kind of heart rending, but it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. So don't go in with like major high expectations. <laughs> okay. Like the way I describe this is if you, if this was dinner, if we were going to dinner, um, you know, Oppenheimer is an absolutely opulent taster menu where you have to go and sit on the couch afterwards, pop open the top button of your trousers okay. and just let everything kind of digest for a couple of hours. And then dessert is Barbie, you know, mm-hmm. so anyway
0: you have to do the homework so if you're into your homework Well look uh, yeah, I mean <laughs> I sound
6: like a nerd now when I'm saying <laughs> that I think that was actually I think I'm projecting no, think my a, own kind of ideals It's one of the
0: best film reviews I've ever experienced because <laughs> really? you know exactly <laughs> what to expect and it's like is this for me or not uh, Ryan Gosling steals the show as Ken This is a song so it's kind of a musical isn't it? There are songs There is musical numbers are, in it Yeah Okay, uh, So this is Ryan Gosling Just Ken is the name of this yes, track brilliant. Doesn't seem to matter what I do I'm always number two No one knows how hard I tried Oh, oh I, I have feelings that I can't explain They're Driving me insane
4: All my life
0: been so polite Cause I'm just can't Anywhere else I'd be in. Is it my destiny to live? of blonde got. <laughs> okay. you're, yeah, you're not really you're getting joyless. into it, yeah. yeah.
6: And like everyone was just roaring laughing in the cinema last night as well, <laughs> you know, so everyone appreciated exactly what Barbie is, you know,
0: so. Is it, uh, can you bring your kids to this?
6: I would say, I thought about this afterwards and the Barbie movie, it's adult themed.
0: And it's 12A is the IFCO rating? Yeah.
6: I mean, you could bring, you know, your 12-year-old to it. I'd imagine a lot of the topics would go over the head of a 12-year-old. Visually, I'd imagine it'd be amazing for them to sit in the cinema and watch real life Barbie. Mm -hmm. You know, watch their toy Barbies come to life on the cinema screen. Yeah. But I would say, I would say leave the kids at home and just go with your mates. Yeah, that's what I'd say. But look.
0: Isn't that what everyone's kind of talking about? It's it's a kind of Prosecco night uh, into the cinema. How long is Barbie?
6: It is about two hours, I think.
0: Yeah, that's a good bit now for kids, you know, less than 12. And if I
6: was to be deadly honest about like one, but there was a couple of flaws, whatever, but it was definitely just, it didn't need to be that long. Okay. Yeah, it didn't need to be that long, but still.
0: Barbie sagged in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, I've I've broken all the rules again. Uh, So Oppenheimer, if you're doing stars and all that crack,
6: now Oppenheimer was Cuz you're a real
0: film critic. Uh, I'm a real Keira fi- King, so let me let me give one. you
6: yeah. No, I'd say I said 5 initially and then I was thinking about it. I'm going to say 4.5 because I would have liked to have seen more of the development of Florence Pugh's character and Emily Blunt's character because it was a lot of men talking to each other for 3 hours in Oppenheimer. Um, and yeah. I think that Emily Blunt didn't get she kind of came into it at the end of it but at that stage it was kind of too Sounds late. Like a
0: missed opportunity there. You it? know
6: because she's incredible. She's an amazing actress as is Florence Pugh. Mm. So that was just kind of my perspective of that because
0: First Man which is the film about which Ryan Gosling plays Neil Armstrong and everyone thought it was very boring but the female characters are very well drawn in that mm-hmm. I thought I'd know if you saw that um, Pimlico says spare a thought for Cindy <laughs> I mean,
6: so <laughs> I had, had a Cindy went, so you? I didn't have a Barbie oh right but I had one Cindy and, you, and then the rest of the time I played with my brother's G.I. Joe men but uh, yeah Yeah, poor Cindy. (laughs) Cindy's sitting somewhere in a dark room,
0: you know. Someone says, think about it, Oliver. You're doing a review of the new Oppenheimer film, about the creation of the atomic bomb in an RT radio studio, which is underground <laughs> and probably designed to broadcast to the Irish nation in the event of a nuclear attack. Oh my God, I never so thought expensive. of that. Yeah. I, mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, be down here now. <laughs> I don't <think> it's gonna, <laughs> yeah. Even if someone spilled tea upstairs, you'd, you'd nearly expect it to come. come through. nineties. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I think there was actually a place in Athlone that was designed as a bunker for those situations. Uh, I remember kind of doing vaguely this um, a, a while ago. As I say, with no research whatsoever, it being Friday and I'm relying on you entirely to know absolutely <laughs> everything about Oppenheimer. But I'll find out in my, in my homework that I have to do. <laughs> I'd say Oppenheimer would be a good morning film on a wet day so that you still have the day left afterwards.
6: Oh, a morning film. A oh, good
0: eight I, o'clock showing, right? They're going to have half an hour, 20 minutes of ads. It's going to be all over by half eleven. It should be like, you know.
6: I guess, do you know what? I think it'd be a good midweek movie midweek yeah midweek a good yeah. midweek movie
0: actually here's a question I meant to ask you how did you feel at the end of Oppenheimer are you kind of morose and
6: yeah I felt anxious uh, I thought about it for a good couple of days after I saw it again my main concern was about Cillian Murphy and, and is he okay yeah, um, he lost
0: weight for this role. Yeah, he
6: did. He did. Uh, you know, he really took on the role as Oppenheimer. And you see, I've got a complicated relationship with Cillian Murphy because he actually looks like my brother. So aside ah. from being a fan of him and his work, I've kind of got this weird warm affection towards him as a person because <laughs> yes. he reminds me of my baby brother. Yes. So add all those layers. <laughs> you have
0: sibling love for Cillian Murphy. For Ki- yes, I do. It's, it's the high cheekbones
6: and the blue eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, if you were, would you rewatch either of these films, let's say, in a year or two?
6: I would like to go back. And watch Oppenheimer, and I definitely watch Barbie again. Oh, you're both. Yeah, both. So, all, it's, yeah.
0: so everyone wins in the end. Yeah. Kira King, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been
6: great. Uh, uh, thank it's you.
0: wonderful to see you here as the chief film critic now of, of this show. <laughs>